Gee, you're a long way away. If anybody wants to do like an awkward thing, like if you're into feeling a little bit awkward, can I invite somebody to, like I can't see that far. Oh, look at this. Thank you. Unreal. Well done. We're going to talk about awkward things. That's excellent. I love it. That's so, you're, you are completely and totally welcome, Verity. You do know what would happen though, don't you? You do know what would happen. There would be times, Verity, that we would tag team. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, I reckon this beautiful um, spring day must have been an invitation for some to spend some time at the beach or something, um, which is good. Carry on. Hallelujah. Um, we have three weeks left in the Gospel of John. Can you believe it? Three weeks left. So we've, we've been in John since July last year. So this week, two weeks left, and then we'll just start again, I reckon. We'll just get into it. It's, I think it's been fantastic. It's been a wonderful series. Um, and there, there's this wonderful resource now on YouTube that's, that's stepping right through the Gospel of John. It is so good to go deep into the story of Jesus and to come face to face with the Messiah, with, with the King. Because when, when we have this good grasp of who this Jesus is, the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, that we recognise that he is King, then it shapes everything else to do with this Christian life. Shapes every sense of what it is that we're called to do in the world. Shapes every sense of what this is, the body of Christ gathered, when we have an increasingly clear and compelling and rich understanding of who this Jesus is. So I encourage you, like, get on a steady diet of, of that YouTube series through, through John. Read John again, multiple times. What we see in this has got, that's not what I was talking about. In John, we've probably got the, the most mature gospel telling of the story of, of Jesus. John's had a, a lot longer to reflect on the whole thing. He's so incredibly deliberate in stitching together this story of Jesus with the entire Jewish-Israelite narrative. You will never get to the bottom of what John is trying to tell us about Jesus. I encourage you to swim in that for a long, long time. We're only going to do it for the next two weeks. Um, in the last month or so, we've been looking specifically at the, at the death and at the resurrection of Jesus. The, this self-sacrifice of God on the cross through the Son that made atonement. It made a, a covering uh, over sin and death. He cleansed the, the brokenness and the decay of this fractured order. And in covering our sin, in covering our death and decay, God has made a permanent way for us to be in relationship with him, for us to be in proximity with him. Is that worth a hallelujah? He's made a permanent way. You might remember that, that the, the gospel of Matthew, right at the very, very end of that telling, that, that Jesus says, um, be sure of this, I'm with you. I am with you always to the very end of the age because of this atoning, because of the covering, the, the, the ability for us to be in proximity with the risen Christ, with the triune God. It's done. I will be with you always to the very end. 
over the age. This atoning sacrifice, it was an act of forgiveness, of forward givenness, of self-emptying love. God in Christ pouring himself out for his own beloved creation despite our self-loving rebellion. And in loving humanity in this way, not only did God make right the relationship between himself and humanity, he also laid out the model of our relationships with one another. As I have loved you, love one another. As I have forgiven you, forgive one another. It's a new world order. It is the order of love. It was also on the cross that the powers and the principalities of this world, they were judged, they were put to shame. Even though the religious and the political establishments of this world, they rejected the order of love, they preferred the order of power, they preferred the order of control and of violence. Even though these worldly powers and principalities put love to death, love won. Love defeated death overruled this risen king is the new adam is the first fruit of a new humanity and the first thing that this true king proclaims do you remember what it is what's the first thing the true king proclaims peace the order of his kingdom relationships put right peace and then Thomas, the one who doubted on, on placing his finger in the mark of the nail, he believed and he declared, my Lord and my God. Thomas gets a bad rap, but he's the first one to declare it. My Lord and my God. Then John closes out chapter 20 with what seems to be the end of the gospel, like you read verse 30 and 31 and you think, oh, that, that's, that's the end. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, by having faith in him, by being faithful to him, you will have life by the power of his name. We've quoted those verses like a stack of times in the last, last year and a half and we're going to come back to them in a, in a couple of weeks to close. But it seems as though um, that's, that's the end. But then John adds one more story. He, he adds one more account of a, a post-resurrection encounter with Jesus as an epilogue. And you might remember that right back in the start of John, he begins with a prologue. It's a setup. And he wants, he wants to position his whole gospel account within the great big Jewish narrative. And he goes right back to Genesis. And he starts his account with, in the beginning. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. And so now this epilogue, this last seemingly tacked on story must do a similar job it must situate this story of jesus within the much larger israelite narrative and particularly looking forward to the promises that we're now seeing come into effect so we're going to look at this scene um, today and, and next sunday as well so uh the words won't be on your screen so pull out your bible shame shame where's your bible yep we got that. 
Yep. So that's better. So a couple of weeks ago, I think it was three of you. Yeah, we've probably got a third. That's good. Um, if you don't have a, a Bible on your phone or a, or a physical one, you're going to need to snuggle up next to somebody who's got one so that you can be reading along. We're looking at John 21, verses 1 to 11. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Let me pray before we do. Holy Spirit, would you guide us as we open your word again today? We do need your help. We know that the things that are written down are beyond our finite minds to understand and we see we need your spirit. By your spirit, would you reveal yourself to us in this text today? Would you, would you guide us into a place of revelation, a place of discovery, a place that we can't get ourselves just through our own intellect? Illuminate your own word to us today, we pray. Amen. John 21, verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and that's James and John, and two other disciples. So, there are seven of them. We've got seven disciples. Now, we've seen all through John's account, whenever he's, he's either saying the number seven or he's leaving us to add it up, what we're looking at here is a picture of completeness. So seven is the number of wholeness, the number of completeness. It is the perfect number. So right from the get-go, he's setting something up for us to pay attention to about wholeness and completeness. So we need to remember that. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now, we can probably think of a whole bunch of reasons why he might do this, why he might say, I'm going fishing. The truth is, we don't really know. It doesn't say. He might just be hungry. It might just be day off. He's going fishing. Well, one of the uh, interesting theories about this is this is yet another echo of the Exodus. And so we've seen this throughout John too. John will continually point back to the Exodus. So you remember after the first Passover, the Israelites had escaped e Egyptian slavery and they were traveling in the wilderness. You remember the story. And it didn't take long for them to start grumbling and wanting to go back to Egypt. In Exodus 14, we see this incredible scene, the Red Sea parts and the Israelites cross on dry ground and then the Egyptian army um, takes chase and they're following following the Israelites through and then the waters cover over them and cuts off the Egyptian chase and, and the Israelites are free and dry on, on the other side. They are redeemed, saved and they're looking forward to the promise of a new nation, to the promised land. So that was Exodus 14. Then in Exodus 15 we've got this wonderful song of, of praise to this God that has set this nation free. And then in Exodus 16, one month after their escape, the grumbling starts. We should have just stayed in Egypt. Would have been better if we all just died, died in, in Egypt. Let's go back. Back to what we know. Back to what's safe. Back to what's familiar. And so now in John 21, it's a matter of weeks after the cross, which is the true Passover. And here perhaps is a replay. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go fishing seems plausible. 
what, what we do know is that Simon Peter, he is the protagonist, like he is the main character in this story. Now, what was the last thing that we really heard about Peter? Do you remember? What was the last we really heard about him? He won, no, he lost the race, didn't he? That was the last thing. He ran to the tomb, but John won. What about before that? What was the last thing that, that John makes quite a point of telling us about? He denied Jesus three times. And we, we know, we get this picture of Peter that he is a deeply passionate guy. His heart is on his sleeve. And so no doubt the guilt about denying Jesus, then only to see him crucified, would have just been crushing for this fellow. And then three days later, he sees the empty tomb. And then later on that same day, he comes face to face with the risen Christ. So what is going on for Peter when he makes this choice? I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. And so they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but his disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? So Jesus is on the beach. He's probably about 90 metres away. It might have been hard to make him out, but this has been a bit of a theme so far with the resurrected Jesus. Like Mary Magdalene, like she mistook him for the gardener and even the disciples didn't know that it was him until he showed them his, his, his hands and, and his side. Have you any fish? And the word's an interesting one. Have you any prosphagion? There's some fun Greek words, isn't there? Prosphagion. Have you any prosphagion? This word only occurs once in the New Testament. It is not the regular word for fish. The word for fish that we, that we normally see is ichthus. Well, Jesus didn't ask about ichthus. He asked about prosphagion. And prosphagion is more to do with bread. Prosphagion is something that you put on to bread, like it's a, it's a relish or, I don't know, pex paste or something like that. But it's something that goes on bread. Fellas, have you got any of the stuff that goes on bread? It's weird. No, they replied. He said, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they did and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Throw your net on the other side. That's a strange thing to do. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. Your translation might say you'll find some. It's a better translation. The ESV, the NIV, King James will all say you'll find some. And we know that Jesus is all about finding so i hope you're getting the image imagery here he's all about finding lost sheep lost coins treasure like a uh the, the the pearl he's about finding things that for some reason have become lost or hidden or an out of, out of relationship and then he's about restoring those found things into right relationship right relationship with bread it seems and so they cast their net out on the right side and they couldn't haul it in because there were so many fish, so many ichthus. Verse 7, 
Then the disciple Jesus loved, which we believe is John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, and he jumped into the water and headed to the shore. The others stayed in the boat, and they pulled the loaded net to shore. But there were only about 100, 100 yards from the shore. So John recognises Jesus first, but Peter wins this race. He puts on his tunic. He was naked, some translation some translations tell us. And I wondered, is this where we get fishing tackle from? Probably not. But Peter puts on his tunic and off he goes. Verse 9. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooked over a charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus already had fish. But not just any fish. Here he has yet another word for fish, opsarion. And opsarion is like little fish. So John has used three different words for fish and they all mean different things. And in our English translation, all we get is fish. So opsarion is similar to prosphagion. It means little fish, um, but little fish that goes on bread, that goes with bread. Jesus is cooking little fish and some bread some loaves. The only other time that this word opsarion occurs, occurs in John's gospel is at the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6 with the loaves and the fishes. Only other time that it's used. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus said. And so Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish and yet the net hadn't torn this is not peter's first rodeo not that rodeos have got anything to do with fishing but but this is deja vu for peter he's been here before do you remember do you remember the last time that peter had an encounter like this turn with me to luke 5 luke chapter 5 First one, let me know when you're there. So we're rewinding about three years now. This is back now to the calling of the disciples right at the start of Jesus' ministry. And again in this story, Peter is the main character. So Luke 5, first one. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias in the John 21 story, same, same sea. Great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, Simon Peter, its owner, to push out into the water, and so he sat in the boat and taught the crowds there so there was jesus jesus was on the shore teaching and then steps into the boat verse 4 when he had finished speaking he said to simon now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish you're not in the right spot yet we need to go deeper master simon replied we worked hard all night didn't catch a thing but if you say so I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. 
A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and were on the verge of sinking. The nets began to tear. What happens when the nets begin to tear? We lose fish. Verse 8. When Simon Peter realised what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me, I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the other with, others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. So it was James and John who were in the other boat. Jesus replied, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. In, in today's passage, in John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus is not in the boat with them. Jesus is on, is on the shore. And so the relationship is different somehow now. During Jesus' time on earth, of course, he was with them physically, in the boat, fishing. But now something's different. The relationship's different, but, but the result is the same. In fact, the result is even better now. A great and a miraculous haul that after the resurrection, the nets don't tear. You put yourself in Peter's shoes. You've just spent the last three years with Jesus, who's been crucified, is now raised from the dead. You think that you've completely blown it and now he replays the same scene from the day you dropped everything to follow him, only better. Not only has Jesus reconfirmed that original call, he's now leveled up. Now that Jesus is crowned, now that he is crucified, resurrected, now that the new covenant, and this is the point, now that the new covenant has been sealed in his blood, the nets won't break. Those old covenant nets, they weren't sufficient. They could not contain the promises. The nets would tear. The boats would sink. New covenant nets are like new covenant wineskins. So you might remember that Matthew, Mark and Luke, they all, they all record Jesus' teaching about the wineskins. And these fellows were there. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine, ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. The old covenant has gone. The new covenant has come. Something better is now here. Something promised centuries ago. So turn with me now to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, verse 6. Give me a yay when you're there. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said... And now the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah 31, like 600 years earlier. 
When God found fault with his people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand, led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. It tore. I lost them. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbours, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone. From the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date. It'll soon disappear. It is ready to vanish. And so this miracle is a sign that the new covenant is now in effect. What God promised 600-something years ago, well, here it is. That day is now. The new covenant has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. That brittle first covenant that couldn't save us from our rebellion, that's finished. It's been replaced. So go fishing, people. Go carry the good news. Go gather them in. Because the, the new covenant, the better covenant, the better promise that Jesus foreshadowed in the Last Supper, remember, just a couple of, couple of days ago, it's now in effect. The nets won't tear. Hallelujah. That's part one. Here's part two. Going to get very practical. Like Peter, we have all been called into this ministry of co-laboring with Christ to reveal, to express, to enlarge his, his kingdom. All of us. We are to fish for people. We are to seek to find the lost, to reunite, reunite a broken people, a broken world with the bread of life. This is our commission. It's our assignment. It's our common call, all of us. And so I want to give you a practical insight from this fishing scene in John 21. And it's an insight that I use with, um, with ministries and Christian organisations when we look at their strategic planning process. And it, it applies no matter what the kingdom work is that we're involved in. We've got seven fishermen and we can make these four observations about them. The first thing we can say about them is that they are proficient. They know how to do their jobs. They're experienced. They've been trained. They've done it before. They're well practiced. It's where they've achieved their, their livelihood. They know the strategies and the techniques. They're proficient. The second is that they are, they are prepared. When Peter said, let's go fishing, they all just got in the boat and went. The, the King James Version says, they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. They were prepared. They were ready. The third thing, the third observation we can make is that they were persistent. They fished all night. They didn't give up when the going got, got hard. They're proficient, they're prepared, they're persistent, and they were positioned. If you remember in, in Luke's account, like the first uh, time we had this miraculous haul, Jesus had to say, go further out. 
Not this time. You're in the right spot. You are positioned. Just throw your nets on the other side. They were proficient. They were prepared. They were persistent and they were positioned and yet they were pescatorially impoverished. From a worldly perspective, they had done everything right. Like, and no doubt it had worked very, very well for them before. They'd made a living from it. Good processes, good result, but not this time. I'm sure they'd had slow nights before, but Jesus is making a point in this scene, just like he did three years earlier in the Luke 5 account. No result, zero fish. Until they heard the voice from the shore. Throw your nets on the right side. So this is an instruction that probably made no sense at all. It might have even been that, that the boat, and this was common as I un- understand it, for fishing boats in that part of the world and at that time, it may have been built to fish out of the left. Like the whole side of the boat might have looked different so that you fish out of the left. Certainly all of their job roles um, and all of the gear would have been set up for them to fish out of the left. And so to throw their nets out of the other side would have been really awkward and difficult and unprofessional even. But they did it and we know the result. And so here's the lesson. If we are to be co-laborers with Christ, working with him to reveal his kingdom, to achieve kingdom outcomes, our methods on their own won't cut it. We have to listen for the voice on the shore. Now, for for Peter, very soon, and of course it's already true for us, this would be the voice from within. It would be the voice from among. Once the Holy Spirit is poured out and takes up residence in the human heart. But for Peter, he needs to hear the voice from the shore. We need to hear the voice of the king. We need to hear his voice because it's his catch. It's his harvest. It's his covenant. It's his promise. It's his kingdom, his church. We are participants in what it is that he is already doing. We need to hear his voice. And so does that mean then that the disciples should not have been proficient? That they should not have been uh, prepared or persistent or, or be worried about their positioning? Was that wrong? Was that disobedient? Was that a lack of faith? No. It was precisely these things that Jesus used. This was what Jesus mobilised. This is what he amplified and this is what he multiplied for his purposes when they heard his voice from the shore. If the disciples had not, have been, had not been proficient and prepared and persistent in position, they would not have been ready to respond to Jesus' call. But it was because they were all of these things that Jesus could say, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. They perceived the voice from the shore and they responded. And in partnership with Jesus, their proficiency and their preparedness and their persistence and their positioning paid off and there were a plethora of perch, plentiful pike. You get the point. I believe that we are in a season where Jesus is indeed speaking. We need to hear his voice. 
We need to be attuned to what it is that he is saying. Perhaps at no time in history has the church, has the body of Christ been more proficient, more prepared, better positioned, more persistent in this big work of evangelism. But it kind of feels like we've been fishing all night. Despite the great programs and resources and conferences and training and facilities and and what we see around us in spite of all of these things, and even within the church for that matter, is a growing sense of hopelessness and sadness and meaninglessness and isolation and anxiety and depression on a scale that the world has never seen before. We need to hear the voice from the shore. We need to really believe that we carry good news. We need to believe that the old is gone, the new has come. The nets won't tear. And I don't know about you, but I, I want to see and have a, glow, a growing ache in my gut to see revival, to see renewal. I want to see gen, genuine renewal in individual lives, in, in, in our broader society, in our homes and in our streets and in our neighbourhoods and in our schools and our clubs and in our workplaces and in our oceans and in our forests and on our farms. I want to see renewal. But I know that all of our well-meaning Christian programs and projects, as critical as they are, they're not going to get us there not on their own. We need to hear the voice from the shore. In the big things and in the little things, to incline our ears, to be attuned to that still small voice and then be brave enough to respond even and maybe especially when it feels awkward. I'm going to pray. Lord, we do want to see you move. We know that that your kingdom, your everlasting kingdom, the way that it is in heaven, there is no meaninglessness, there is no hopelessness, there is no sadness, every tear has been wiped away, there is no isolation, there is no separation. And Lord, our shared desire, our common voice, our united prayer, please Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that all all of the good stuff that we do, and we might do it with the best of intentions, we need you, Lord. We need your spirit. How dare we think that we can do it on our own, that we can express your kingdom without you. We need you, Holy Spirit, with you. Would you show us the reality of your spirit within us? Would you empower us? Would you infuse our proficiency and preparedness and all of that stuff with, with, with kingdom reality? We want to see renewal we want to see renewal in this generation we want to see renewal in this place lord god use us take our preparation take our expertise take our loaves and our fishes lord and do what you will your kingdom come lord we ask that in the name of your perfect son our king our lord amen